0: Welcome to episode 156. Today, Dr. Emily Meadows talks about how schools can become a safe space for LGB students, their families, and our queer identifying colleagues. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Smile your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise
1: up and shine Your beautiful smile your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early
0: or late to start to rise up and shine
1: If a cloud has
0: When I was in school The only representation of a family was that of a man and a woman. Sometimes it would be a single grandmother raising children, but never once did I see a lesbian family, a gay family, or a transgender family represented. The first time I met someone raised in a lesbian family was in my senior year of college. I was blown away by that. That was because I never saw it before. I wouldn't say that the public schools I attended were openly hostile to me as an openly gay student, but then I started a Gay Straight Alliance my senior year of high school, and that revealed other values in the community. That was the first time I felt unwelcomed as a queer person. It has been years since I started that GSA, but have schools become safe places for queer students? In many, yes, in most, No. In this podcast, Dr. Emily Meadows will share how we can create a welcoming, inclusive, and safe place for our queer students and colleagues. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so excited to have Dr. Emily Meadows on the podcast. I know her from uh, this affinity group for international school teachers and when i started interacting with her i was like wow we need and i didn't know that one there was an expert like you out there dr meadows and now that i know you i'm like wow we need to share this with teachers of multilingual students so dr meadows welcome to the podcast
1: thank you my pleasure to be here
0: our first question is can you tell us about your current work
1: context i'm an lgbtq consultant for international schools So I work with international schools really all around the world um, to support building policies, practices, communities that are more equitable, that are safer, that nurture belonging for LGBTQ students, uh, faculty, and other community members. And so I, um, well, the past two years, my context has been, Working with these schools over Zoom, um, but I'm traveling more this year if uh, COVID cooperates. So I'll be more in person with communities. But um, that's really what I do, and I, I, um, I grew up in international schools, so that's really why I find myself back in this context as a professional. Um, I was a student at the Anglo-American School of Moscow and also at the American School of Paris. And then when I went into my first career, um, really after my master's was as a school counselor and that was also in international schools. So I worked for many years as a school counselor, most recently at Hong Kong International School. And then now I'm back in uh, private practice, just doing full-time consulting, and I'm based in the Netherlands.
0: Well, your full-time consulting means that there is a need for you out there, and there definitely is. Um, that's why I brought you on the podcast to share with teachers. So can you share with us a story related to working with LGBT, um, and that has really influenced your practice to this day?
1: Working as a counselor first before going into private practice um, and as a queer person myself, I think that's where I started to realize the need for this kind of expertise. Um, I worked with a number of uh, colleagues who were so professional, um, so experienced, so passionate about children in education, and who really weren't sure what to do when it came to supporting LGBTQ students. And so I can think of a number of occasions where I was really fortunate in my work as a school counselor to be able um to be part of of that process of supporting students um, who were maybe coming out at school, maybe students transitioning in school. But I also, so I had my counseling background. I also had a master of um health sciences and sexual health. I'm queer myself. So I thought, yeah, I'm pretty well positioned to do this. And yet, um, I wanted to know a little bit more about what specifically the research said, because even in my own training, I didn't have enough, I didn't feel like I had enough um, really clear guidance around the research and best practice in this specific area to make such important decisions. that could be so potentially impactful on a young person's life and their experience at school. So, um, I think it was a number. I, I don't know that there was one story. I think it was an accumulation of multiple students and um, experiences of the family and realizing, yeah, I want to be able to do this really well and not sort of be hoping or guessing that that was. What was best—not um, going off of instinct, but really having strong guidance. So that's when I went back to uh, do my doctorate, and I said, "I just need to find out everything I can about this and spend all of my, you know, years doing my PhD on on this research specifically." Um, and now, I, you know, I have my personal experience, I have my professional experience to guide me. But also, I'm really when I work with school communities and organizations, I'm really um, I lean heavily on what we know from the research so that it doesn't become based on my opinion or anyone's opinion, but really, what we know about outcomes for for students.
0: Before we talk about the research, let's talk about why, like, why is it so important for schools and teachers to be thinking about their LGBT students, families, and colleagues?
1: I mentioned that I grew up in international schools. So one of the things that I notice about international school communities that I think sets us apart a little bit from other types of schools is that so many of um, the families that go to our schools have left behind um, their home community or their home family base. And they're in some place new. So we do, of course, cater to families who are local to um, the place where the school is, is based. But there are so many families who are transient. And even if the family is local, sometimes they have been out of the country for a number of years and they've returned. And that's why it makes sense for their students to be in an international school system because they they have left and it's hard to reintegrate sometimes. And so because of this, I think that international school communities are maybe more of a hub, more of a community center point than a typical school we come to our school to find friends to you know some people get health care from their schools. some people um you know th- this is where they get information about what's going on in the in the city and um where they come to feel grounded when when they're not really sure where they belong and so i think you know belonging is important for all children and i think in the international school community we have a particular opportunity to really support um, LGBTQ students and make them feel they belong, they have a home, they have a space here um, in our community. And that's a little bit about my why from just like a personal perspective is, um, you know, feeling like I belong in international schools has meant a lot to me in my lifetime. But the other why is that if we think about the alternatives of not doing this, um, we, you know, I mentioned that I I rely pretty heavily on research. So we have a lot of evidence now, a pretty robust body of research to show that LGBTQ students are at disproportionately high risk for a number of negative um, health and mental health and academic outcomes. So whether it be depression, anxiety, um, disordered eating. Um, academic performance, absenteeism, school absenteeism, I mean, relationship, um, abuse, there are really a number of negative outcomes that we see. Of course, any child might be at risk for these things, but, but the discrepancy, the, the really higher risk falls on LGBTQ kids. And what we know is that there's nothing inherently risky about being LGBTQ. It's that these risks are exacerbated by the context. So when it's a context that stigmatizes and marginalizes you based on who you are, it stands to reason that, you know, you might see more anxiety or depression, or you might not be so excited to get up to go to school in the morning. And um, I guess the, the positive side of this is that we've also seen from the research that when we improve the context, when we reduce stigma and discrimination, we can also see that risk decline. And so schools are really um, have the opportunity to be impactful and to have a positive effect on their students' well being, their academic performance, their health, their um, self esteem by creating safer, more equitable learning spaces for for students.
0: What are some things that teachers can schools can do to remove uh, the stigmatization around the LGBT community, in particular, in light of what's happening in America, where in so many states, there's the Don't Say Gay Act now enacted, it's like, "Ah," teachers are feeling that they can't support their teachers and colleagues. They can't support their students and they they feel like they're not supported themselves because they are also queer identifying.
1: Yeah, we're in a particularly dark time in some some ways. Um, But there also is reason for hope. I see progress um, in areas that I think have has come faster than I ever expected. I work with school communities all around the world, including in places where LGBTQ identities are criminalized. And so that can kind of relate to um, what some of our colleagues in the US are, are facing with the don't say gay, so-called don't say gay laws and, and so forth. Um, you know, I would always say there's there's something you can do. So um if you are in a situation like that, where you think, well, my hands are tied, I, there's nothing I can do. I would encourage you to think about some, some things that you can do, so I'll give a few examples. Um, we can start with, for example, language. So a lot of teachers, you might, um, and this, this is, I'm going to say it in English, and I'm sure your um, listeners will be able to translate to, Whichever languages they're working in. But for example, I hear a lot in schools boys and girls, or if if we're being fancy, maybe ladies and gentlemen. And the idea is that, you know, there's two ways to exist in this world. You're either a boy or you're a girl. And non-binary people and agender people are erased from that. The other thing when we when we use that um, sort of phrase to call to attention a group of people. We're sort of saying, here's how I see you. I see you as your gender, right? I don't see you as, like, that." that's the thing I think that I see is, that's most important about you. And so I encourage teachers to think about the language they're using and to use more gender-neutral language. So, for example, just calling a group of students students or learners or readers or scientists or whatever it is, maybe something that's a little bit more... Um, relevant to the context that you're in with them rather than just their gender and that also creates space for students who may not identify as a boy or a girl or might identify as both for example and you don't need to know one way or the other because you're using gender neutral language so anyone can feel included um similarly not just within with language but when we're um thinking about separating students by gender. So I've worked with schools, for example, where they've got like a boy's cubby section and a girl's cubby section, right? Or this can be also with language teaching. I think, I know know that this is happening in a school that I'm um, working with where it was a language instruction teacher who was asking kids to line up according to their gender so boys here girls there and the activity was to teach the language boy and girl um but i know that it put at least one student in that room really in an uncomfortable position um, because they didn't want to line up in the place where they were told they should be and so um So these are some examples when we think about, you know, you're not saying gay, you're not saying transgender in those contexts, but you are still creating a space that allows for your students to imagine themselves outside of this gender binary, outside of maybe gender norms and gender stereotypes. And um, so that's a small thing that can take a little bit of practice because we're our language is so habitual that sometimes we do it without even thinking. Um, but that's that's one strategy for um, a teacher who, who's wanting to integrate this type of thinking and work inclusion into their practice, but who feels that maybe it's too risky. Uh, that's a possibility right there.
0: That's a nice way of doing that instead of talking about like uh, the word "gay." Like you're, I guess you're following the policy of the school, but you're not using gendered. Uh, language and so you're gender neutral so which is communicates that everyone is included right i I wonder what happens now at okay so that like before i get to there let's talk about um, because i was going to talk about policy of like what happens when we go on like overnight trips like kids go on field trips and then they're like boys and girls but we'll talk about that as policy and administration later so we just talked about the classroom teachers. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about like instruction, like what can teachers do during the instruction? In addition, um, if they, for example, like texts, or um, projects that connected to that affirm LGBT uh, LGBT communities?
1: Yeah, um, there are so many, I mean, thankfully, now there's so many resources that I think teachers can draw on to create You know lesson plans units and and even to examine their curricula um to make it more representative i mean you mentioned texts i think that that's very important uh and and a really i i think low-hanging fruit if you will because there are so many texts that are available written by lgbtq authors about lgbtq characters um, and thinking about do, you know selecting texts so often, I see texts around about LGBTQ people that center our oppression and our hardships, and you know there is a reality in that, but there is also I think value in 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 um, highlighting texts that center queer excellence, queer joy, queer humanity um n- not just sort of the bullying or whatever it might be. Um, and so trying to trying to to make sure that LGBTQ people can see themselves and a future for themselves within the materials you select for your your classroom. So that kind of representation. Um, another piece which is so easy if you're not in a school which prohibits this is visible representation. In your learning space, your classroom or your office, so um, it's it you know it might sound cliche, but actually the the flags when kids know what they stand for, um, that symbolism can be quite meaningful to a student, and so having you know um, flags, rainbow flags up, the um, progress, the pride progress flags up, trans flags up, um, or and or um, pictures and posters of LGBTQ people, depending on what you teach, you know, something relevant to your context, um, having those texts that we talked about uh, visible. So, you know, I always have, um, in my counseling office, I always had a range of, of um, books that, you know, kids could pull off the shelf and flip through that would just have representation so they could see themselves. And I think it can be a good um, conversation starter. Um, sometimes parents would notice it and go, oh, and then that would be a door open to them to say, actually, there's something I've been thinking about. I want to, you know, can I share this with you? But if you don't have any signal that you are open to that kind of conversation, that you are supportive, the status quo is that, um if we don't know we might think it's not safe for us so we kind of need you to prove we we need people to prove that they're safe before we can feel that comfort and so you have to kind of if you are yourself even if you are queer yourself or not um letting people know that you know you are trying to create a safer environment for them that will open the door a bit more um yeah, so you asked about ta- text and materials. So those are some examples. I, as I think about text, I'm thinking about this uh,
0: second grade teacher at my school who, um, he said, I am I have to find places for to, to put my books out. And the first book I'm going to put, uh, one of the first books I'm going to put out is like The Two Penguins.
1: The two yeah. penguins, the, like the two dads. Pango, Pango makes three. Pango
0: makes three, yes, that's it. Yeah. And I was like, like I, I mean, he had to tell me about that book. I've heard about that book, but the fact that um, there is a teacher and he, uh, he's just so supportive and like—and just putting, putting that out. like I, I would feel as a student, well, I already feel supported as a colleague knowing that he does mm-hmm. that, but if I, had a, if I was a student at a young age, I'd be like, oh yeah, and if I had two dads, I would feel represented. Mm-hmm. I, I guess another way of saying it is like, um, I'm reading this book called Witch Boy for my with my students, and it's about um, a magical world where boys are only allowed to transform into animals and girls only allowed to do magic. Um, and then so that's right there, that's gendered. But he the the, yeah. the main character tries to uh, break out of that. But then there he befriends this human, and she talks about her two dads,
1: right?
0: And that's another way of like. As I read that, no one, the kids didn't, didn't um, say anything, but it just felt like it was normal, it was, like it was part of literature. I remember as a kid never being able to see that. like The only narrative, the only image of parents were a father and a mother, mm-hmm. and they're always married. And it wasn't even like single parents. Uh, but now, like 20 years later, the fact that there are graphic novels and there are books that address that, it's just so affirming.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the you you bring up two important points. One of them is, yes, the representation, of course, but making it age appropriate. Right. So when you're when you're working with young children, we're not teaching explicitly about sex with young kids anyway, like straight or queer sex. Like that's not that's not what we're trying to do. But we do talk about families all the time. And so making sure that kids can see a range of families represented, because that's the real world. Um, and so, you know, the your colleague chose a text that was written for young children, um, because presumably he teaches, I think you said he's a grade two teacher. So making sure that, that we're doing this in ways that are age appropriate is so, you know, valuable. And um, just, I have been really impressed by librarians these days like there are so many amazing librarians and a lot of times they'll go into work with a school and everyone's sort of not everyone but a good deal of the faculty are kind of new at this and so we're getting our feet wet together and and then you'll have this librarian who's like oh i have a huge collection i'm like i'm ready to show you and so if you're not sure where to start sometimes you know i can't promise for every individual school but sometimes the librarians are ahead of the game here. And they might be able to show you some of the pieces that are already in their collection. You can flip through and see, oh, you know, this is one I'd like for my classroom library, for example. And if you're looking for um, texts outside of that, I love the database. So obviously, you know, there's like, you can search on Amazon or whatever, but there's this database called Mombian, M-O-M-B-I-A-N. I think it's written, it's designed by a lesbian mom. so like there's this like the hybrid of mom being, <laughs> I think is the backstory. But what I love it, it what I love about it is this whole database of books and other resources that you can filter by um, sort of age range that you're wanting to target, maybe particular identities you're wanting to see represented because um, LGBTQ I and mean, there's there's a lot of diversity under that umbrella and um and then they also do not for every single text but they have personalized reviews where they tell you you know here are some of the highlights here are some of the things we thought this book you know kind of glossed over or could have done a bit better and so you know i understand teachers don't have unlimited funding to just buy you know 100 new books every year but this could help give you some an idea of with that funding wh- whatever you do have if you want to put this toward an investment in your classroom library, it can help you select some that you think might go along with what it is you're, you're hoping to teach this year.
0: I I feel like every time you speak, I have another question, I was going to go in this direction, but now I'm going to go into a different direction. So you said that you go to schools, you go to a lot of schools. So like, why are schools now asking you to come in to work with teachers?
1: Tan, I will tell you, so I've been doing this work. For a while i told you I, I have a master's in sexual health which i got i think in 2007 i want to say like i've been doing this for a while but always um as a you know i was working as a counselor that was my full-time job and this was sort of a side interest and a side project and even as far even as recent as i don't know i want to say like this five or six years ago i would tell people what I was researching what I was doing and um a lot of people would just blush and look at their shoes and just weren't quite sure what to do with that and now I tell people what I do and they go oh my gosh you know can I have your email I have a million questions for you my school needs this so bad and I think what changed is um I think what changed is that the students have actually become more vocal about saying Hi, we're here and this isn't good enough. This whole system where we are erased, where we have no space, where we're just asked to like sort of quietly not get in the way, it's not good enough. And so, um schools are hearing that more and more and saying, "Yeah, you're right. This is not this is not what we when we say we want our school to be safe for every child we want every child to thrive or what you know read any mission statement from any school or any vision um it's not compatible with silencing and erasing any marginalized group and so um the lgbtq kids are are, are calling them out on it and i think that's i think those voices of those young people is what has actually changed
0: it's like uh when the clientele is saying they want this <laughs> schools kind of listen
1: uh well yes I mean kids aren't paying the bills yet but um you know you have enough children who who say we aren't we don't feel good here and and there is more of an interest now in I think hearing that but yeah and I think more and more kids are just coming out and so schools are seeking guidance on what should we do? here um because the, whether or not we're prepared these children are part of our community so um we need to do something and so they're looking for best best practice and and research backed guidance so that again it's not somebody's opinion because that doesn't hold up very well under scrutiny
0: <laughs> we'll get to the research pretty soon i want to go back to uh, talking about families what happens if a family's says, great, this school is really inclusive. But this is not my value. These, these are the mm-hmm. values that we as my uh, my family, we don't support that. What do you do?
1: Well, I'm a consultant. I thankfully am not um, the head of any school. So um, I can only say what's best for LGBTQ kids, I cannot tell a school what they should care about. But if a school says, we want all of our kids to be safe, we want all of our kids to feel affirmed, we want all of our kids to be able to access a curriculum that is relevant to them and their lives, and then I can tell them what to do. Um, There will always, I think, be many different opinions about LGBTQ people. I'm not particularly interested in debating our humanity or whether or not we have the right to exist and be in communities. Um, but if a school wants guidance on, on how to do that, that's where I can help. And I'm happy to work with people, you know, school communities that have a lot of questions or maybe aren't sure. I think there are lots of things like, you know, a lot of compelling reasons why this work can be um, accessible and, and add value to any school community. Um, and and I'm I also always am happy to offer, you know, parent education sessions, things like that. Because I, I do think some of that um the opposition to equity and belonging work can come from a place of um maybe fear, maybe maybe not having all the information. And so if we can sort of help reassure, hey, this is not you know, I think some of the fears are like we're gonna turn your kid gay or something. No, 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 no. We're not trying to we're not trying to try to turn anyone anything. We just want to make the school safe for everybody. Um and so helping to just clarify what is it that I do. Um, I'm not here trying to brainwash anybody. I'm not here trying to change anyone's gender or sexual Id- um, identity. Um, we just want the school to be safe for everybody then it can, you know, with time and, and building trust and relationships, um, my hope is that we could see every community member as a potential ally, as a potential support to make, make the school uh, better for all of us and not to take anything away from anyone else, that's, that's not what we're doing. We
0: are, as queer people, we are not out there trying to recruit other people to our community. We just want to say, a- good.
1: No, it's a myth. It's a myth that's been used to sort of scare people. Um, but no, that, that that's not the that, that's not what I do.
0: We have enough fabulosity to go around. So we don't need more people.
1: Plenty, Tam, plenty.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about um, your guidance for school leadership based upon the research. What what does the research say based upon uh, what you've studied?
1: I think school leaders who haven't yet started this work think that they're sitting in a position right now of neutrality and trying to decide if they take sort of an activist slant in their work. And I think I want to challenge that and say, if you have done nothing to actively support equity and belonging for LGBTQ people in your school, you are not neutral. You are preserving and upholding the status quo. And the status quo is exclusion, repression, and marginalization. So you can't sit and do nothing and think you're neutral. You're making a decision either way, to uphold the status quo or to be part of the movement toward equity and belonging. And so that would be my first piece of guidance is just to you know, sit with that and think about where your values are and where you want to be as a leader during this time. Um, And then when you're ready, um, I do think it's a good idea to either, you know, bring in a consultant or, or do some good reading on your own, because again, there will be as many opinions as there are people in your community. And if we're doing this work based on opinion, it will fall flat pretty quickly you have to be able to back it up so you want to either you know do the research yourself and really understand it or hire someone who can explain it to you so that as you move forward you can feel confident that you are supported by something stronger than a personal opinion um and then don't you know move forward leadership is so important in this and i think there's a lot of educators who are ready but are afraid to do the work because they're not sure if their school leadership will support them so we do really really need leaders to be involved in um taking a stand and being actively supportive of of this work um you know if you want to be a leader that's why you got into this work lead (laughs) Let's do it. <laughs> what have you
0: seen that school leaders have done really successfully to support LGBT communities?
1: Um, I do a lot of work with schools around transgender um, inclusion, and I always recommend a policy um, rather be- because um, there are a number of specific questions that come up around trans kids in schools. And, you know, so we're thinking about bathrooms, change facilities, sports, teams, names and pronouns. There's a lot of things that are specific to trans kids or questions around that are specific to trans kids that um, if you don't have a policy in place, it can be really confusing for the child, um, knowing what their rights and protections are. And also for the the faculty that works with the child, they're going, well, what, am I, what name am I supposed to use? Um, who's going to tell me when it's time to change, if it's time to change, am I supposed to ask the kid like what, you know, what a lot of athletics faculty going, can they be on the sports team? I don't know. And so it really shouldn't be up to individual teachers to try to sort through that. It's too much. Um, it should be embedded in policy and, um, school leaders can be really the, the ones to make that happen. Um, so that nobody is left kind of defending individual decisions or trying to Google what to do trans kid pronouns. You know what I mean? Like that's what's happening in a lot of schools right now. And people want to do the right thing, but they also need guidance Um, because let's face it, most of us were never taught quite what what the right thing is. And so no matter how well-intentioned you are, if you don't have clear guidance, you could end up causing harm. Um, And so that's one area where I think leaders can be really impactful is actually bringing this into the school policy, making it a formalized commitment to safety and equity.
0: Because I think um, leaders are uh, have vision, a long term vision, and when they put things in a policy, the vision lives beyond their tenure at the school. And so when they move, it's not up to the whim of another leader it's there in the policy, you can't change it. Unless you do want to change it, there's a lot of talking that um, has to go around, but parents now have that policy, teachers have that policy, students have the policy, and now that is uh, there to support, uh, support them. Exactly. Let's talk about uh, t- colleagues. Uh, what can we do to support our queer identifying uh, colleagues?
1: Again. Um, advocating whether this personally impacts you or not, advocating for policies that support the recruitment and retention of excellent queer educators. So internationally, um, we have the question of visas and dependents. So what will this what is the school able and willing to do in terms of um, visas for same sex partners, for example? or, or children um, of, uh, in partnerships where the couple might not be married because perhaps they can't legally obtain a marriage license where they are. Um, when we're thinking about transgender uh, colleagues, making sure that privacy is ensured throughout the process so that even if they have a passport, for example, or other documents, um, that use a name that was assigned at birth or gender markers assigned at birth, how can we ensure that they are still able to safely and privately c- complete the application process through our school, um, integrate into our school to know that their privacy will be protected? Um, if healthcare is required, um, gender affirming healthcare is required for a trans. Uh, teacher, is it available in your area? Um, are you able to answer questions about that if an applicant is asking? And if it's not available, will you provide um, opportunities for that teacher to seek uh, healthcare outside of the country? Um, what? How does the insurance work for that? Can you answer those questions? Because I think for, these are just a few of many ex- examples of questions that LGBTQ people have when recruiting that we have to navigate on our own a lot of the times. The school is not set up to answer those questions. They don't know a lot of the times, it can feel scary to ask them. And it's the onus is on us to ask the question that information is not openly provided. So we're all like sort of going, um, you know, underground looking for people who might know someone who worked at that school to try to figure out like, am I gonna be safe there? And um, so I think, Supporting colleagues to make sure that they have just like the basic rights and protections that that um, if you're an ally, if you're a cis ally, advocating for that. So saying, yeah, I know I have this, and this is important to me that my kids were able to come with me here and get tuition benefits, for example. But I want to make sure that all of my colleagues have that, and that um, you know we're not marginalizing uh, our queer colleagues, and that their kids have to then go to some other school on a different schedule or whatever.
0: Oh, there are so many things to think about. Um, let's end with let's end the podcast with this question. It's a three-in-one, very quick uh, response. It's called red, uh, traffic light teaching. It's red light, yellow light, green light. It represents things that teachers uh, one thing that a, te- a thing a teacher can start doing, stop doing, and continue doing.
1: Okay, red light, yellow light, green light. That's fun. Okay, red light, stop asking kids to tell you their pronouns in one big circle where everyone has to say it on the spot. It's great to make space for kids to share gender affirming name and pronouns. But when we go around and make everyone do it together, this can be really, really scary for some kids who you might want to be creating a safe space, but they don't necessarily feel safe with you. So kids are in a position to either out themselves or lie or misgender themselves. And so we want to make space for it, but we don't want to do this sort of pronoun circle and put everyone on the spot. So that's a red light. Keep doing. Okay. Keep doing and start doing. Well, I'm assuming that I know what people are doing. (laughs) Um, Okay. Um, Start doing and keep doing. Think of some ones that people are I would say start looking through the materials that you're using. And we often talk about, you know, we talked about TAN, like what texts you can add to your library and things like that. Um, If you are in a place where Tango makes three on the front shelf is going to get you called into your admin's office and possibly fired, I do advocate for you to keep yourself safe. And so what you could do instead of bringing in books that may or may not have very long shelf life in your classroom because they're going to be ripped out as soon as you order them is to look and see what kind of texts you have that might be supporting um, really gender stereotypical norms or very um, gender stereotypical relationships and power dynamics. And to start either... Moving those to the back of the shelf, or even more interesting, having conversations with kids about what that looks like and why. So, Tan, you mentioned the book that you're reading, where there's like a very gendered difference in like the magical powers of the characters. Obviously, this is fictional, but it it is, I think, a very interesting conversation to have with students. Like, why do you think? This is. And does that seem fair to you? And if you were an author, what would you do differently? Or would you keep it the same? And let them think about and examine gender norms and just sort of question the necessity of that. So that's a green light. Start questioning more openly with your students um, when it comes to really gender stereotype materials that may already be in your classroom or that you might even be required to teach, depending where you are. Okay, you said this was a quick one. I'm not making it quick. Last one, yellow. Keep doing. I don't know what people are doing <laughs> what everybody's. Doing. Everyone's doing different things. Okay, here's what I would say keep doing. Keep looking around in your community for other people who are interested in this type of work. It can be really isolating. It can be discouraging at times, it can be frustrating, maybe sometimes even a little scary. Um, it feels a lot better when you don't feel like you're alone. And you're not alone, I assure you. There are lots of us doing this work, but they might not be right next door to you. So I would say keep looking around for the folks who are doing this work and stay in community with them um, so that your practice, your equity and safety practice is more sustainable.
0: Well, Dr. Meadows, you it has been a pleasure Uh, to host you on the podcast and you've been uh, so clear in your advocacy and so compassionate in your words so this has been a great podcast i know teachers will um, see the link between supporting marginalized students who are learning different languages adding english to their repertoire but also supporting those kids who are marginalized uh, based upon their sexual orientation so thank you and
1: knowing and knowing tan that there's going to be plenty of overlap, too, that LGBTQ kids are also like, you know, language learners. So.
0: So, Dr. Emily Meadows, again, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: My pleasure, Tan. It was a delight to talk to you.
0: Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work, and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now, onto our recap. Why do I sometimes have podcasts about LGBT topics when this podcast is devoted to teachers of MLs? Much of our work in advocating for multilingual students is for them to be seen, for them to be valued equally, and for them to have equal access to everything that a school has to offer. This work is exactly the same work that queer students need. Remember, there is no neutrality. By doing nothing, we are also supporting systems of oppression. If you're listening to this podcast to this point, I know that you're an advocate who is already on this March for Equity for all students and colleagues, including our queer ones. And for that, I thank you. You are not alone in this work. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play traffic light teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful. Yeah, yeah.